Hey there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. Due to this, you may experience varying audio levels. Thanks for understanding and thanks for listening. It's the year 700 in the ancient city-state of Tikal, one of the largest urban sites of the pre-Columbian Maya civilization. You stand on the top of a massive stone pyramid that rises from the very center of the city. You're a mighty king, brushing shoulders with the gods. You take in the view for just a moment. The city radiates in ever simpler structures to the very edge of the jungle that rings it, with you at the center of it all. Your city. Big as it is, you're keenly aware it's just one of many cities dotting this jungle landscape. And neighbors can turn on a song from friend to foe. Your people support you for now, but you need to deliver for them. They're free to vote with their feet, after all. And you know that if things stop going well, they'll likely try their luck in a neighboring city. As in modern politics, the show must go on. Performing today's ritual, you'll have to bridge the divine and the mortal. No pressure, right? Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work over time and across cultures. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Kinkella, professor of archaeology at Moorpark College. We'll be discussing life as a Maya king and the workings of the Maya government during the Classic period, when ancient cities with surprising echoes of modern urban life flourished in the jungles of Mesoamerica. It's great to be here, Karen. This sounds like it's just going to be really fun. Well, let's just dive right in. Um, Please, could you kick us off by giving us just a little bit of context, a quick who, what, when, and how for the classic period Maya. Well, the classic period Maya are at their height. I like to tell my students, this is the time of most. So if you have any sort of question about the Maya, if you're like, hey, when were their cities at the biggest, the classic period? Hey, when were their kings the most powerful at the classic period, (laughs) right? When was the population the highest? When was the most going on? When was there the most warfare? Uh, All of that equals the classic period. I think every cliche that, that people think of when they think about the ancient Maya, that is classic period Maya. Awesome. So where, where were the Maya and, and when, and when particularly are we going to be focusing on in our conversation today? Because the classic period was kind of long. Yes, it was. So the Maya are located in Central America, uh, or we can also say Mesoamerica. And where we're looking for today are the countries of Guatemala, uh, Mexico, really Southern Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula area, and Belize. There's also okay. a yeah. There's also a few Maya sites in um, El Salvador and Honduras. So it's that if you look at a world map and you look at Southern Mexico, it's the big bump at the bottom. That is Mesoamerica. And in terms of the the uh, time periods, the ancient Maya have a pre-classic, classic, and post-classic period. The Pre-classic is from about 2000 BC to about 250 AD. The classic is from 250 to 900 AD. And the post-classic is from about 900 or 1000 up until contact with the Spanish. So for today, we'll look at that classic period 
of 250 to 900 AD, and specifically, it'll probably be the most fun if we focus on a day in the life somewhere around 700 AD. And I just have to say that um, it, it really, the Maya have an, an incredibly impressive longevity. Uh, let's hope we get anywhere close to that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. They, I mean, it's literally thousands of years of longevity, and we have to remember that they're still around. There's still 8 million Maya in the Maya world today, and they still practice their cultural beliefs. So this is something oh, where wow. they don't, yeah, where they don't build pyramids anymore, but their culture is still very, very intact. So first, I, I would love you to answer the question I, I like to ask everybody, which is if you could just share something about your own work over time, something unexpected or funny or particularly memorable that you've experienced on the job. Well, Karen, I did get a bot fly larva once in the jungle. And what? <laughs> uh, who hasn't? That sounds awful. Uh, so, hey, you said unexpected. So I, I will uh, obviously never forget this. How a bot fly works is that a bot fly just looks kind of like a regular nasty fly. But how they procreate is interesting. They lay their eggs on a mosquito, and then a mosquito comes and gives you a mosquito bite, but you get oh so much more. I will never forget, I had a a mosquito bite in my ankle and it just never really healed. It wasn't super disgusting, but it just never really healed. I woke up one morning, I got up, I was brushing my teeth and as I brushed my teeth, I felt a wiggle in my ankle. My bot fly no. larva was wiggling oh. and taking a little bite every so often. So I had to get my bot fly larva out of my body and how you do that is you put a piece of tape over the wound for 24 hours. So I dutifully chilled out, put my piece of tape on, waited for my bot fly to die because the bot fly larva has to breathe throughout, uh, throughout the wound. So you put the tape over and you're suffocating your bot fly larva. So I waited my day and then in the evening, I had to get the dead bot fly out. So I was super tired. I remember this, it was super hot. So we're in the jungle, you know, I was in this little, little room and I sat there at the side of my little cot and I put my ankle up and I pushed as hard as I could to get the bot fly larva out. And I sat there and I pushed harder and I pushed harder and the time went on and I was so tired. I was so tired. And with one final push, I went, Aah! and I still didn't get it. So in my, in my feverish need to get it, I did the only stupid thing I did so far, which, which is I grabbed my pocket knife and I cut it out like G.I. Joe. Ah! Uh, that wound got a little infected. So note to self, don't cut out your own bot fly larva. I'm kind of speechless. That sounds so traumatizing. You went back anyway. to the field after that? You are a brave man. We'd love to, to have you get us into the shoes of a Maya king in the classic period. Just give us a typical day. Start with when he wakes up. What's he worried about? What's he got on his mind that day? I really, I really like this, this setup. So we want to think of it like this. You're the Maya king. You know, uh, you wake up in the morning and you are living, I would call it sort of an ensconced existence. You know, you're, you're not around a ton of the common folk all the time or this kind of thing. You're, you know, you're, you're with the royal court. You're even 
physically separated from really the rest of the populace because you're living in a major city. And while you're not living in the pyramid, we have to re remember that the pyramids themselves are funerary mon monuments. Maybe your grandfather and great-grandfather are buried in the pyramids. You're living at what we call an Acropolis right next to it. So the Acropolis has a bunch of little rooms and these rooms are for sleeping. So you're gonna wake up in, a, in honestly a really small room. So you kind of live in a cemetery almost? I, I wouldn't call it a cemetery because it's, it's way more positive than that, that, if that makes sense. It's much more like, check out that huge pyramid right over there. Guess who's in there? My grandfather. You wake up in a city that is reminding everyone of who you are. And so you get up and even though your room is really tiny, because architecturally the Maya didn't really, they never really did the full arch. So they couldn't get like huge interior rooms. You wake up in your little tiny bedroom and then you get out and you hang out in your little kind of enclosed plaza, just with maybe the queen, with your kids, with a couple servants and that kind of stuff. And then you, uh, once you get up and maybe hang out with them for a little while, um, maybe interact with your kids a little, maybe look at your son and you're sort of judging him, he's 10, you know, and you know, you wish he was maybe a little smarter. You wish, wish he was maybe a little <laughs> more on it. Yeah, you do because he's gonna be king after you. And you're kind of, maybe you're a little worried. It's not looking good. Why are you worried? It's, you're making me nervous about what the king's got ahead of him. Because the king is all about this kind of constant nervousness and politicking and balancing everything out and looking out for his, his lineage because he's, you know, he's part of this lineage. I mean, his father and grandfather and great grandfather, they all did it. And he's hoping his son will, will take after him and, and run this successful, huge Maya city. So, so this is a big deal as he thinks about this. Now, as he goes on with his morning, he might have a meeting that morning with, with various uh, governmental entities. And maybe he has a couple things that he's going to do that day. You know, uh, warfare is going to be a part of the classic Maya world. Now, the Maya never had emperors. So one person never ruled the whole place. This is a bunch of different city-states. So you're the Maya king, and you're kind of very carefully figuring out what to do with the other cities. Should yeah. you be friends with them? Yeah. Should you be friends with them? Is it time to try and take them down? Can you take them down? Can they take you down? Are you going to use the wealth of your city to try and do battle with the other one or not. So you're meeting with your generals to try and figure that out. You're going to have to do a bloodletting ceremony at, uh, every so often too. And so there's a lot of pomp and circumstance to being king. So you might want to meet with when are we going to do the bloodletting ceremony? And then you're going to go through your day like that, you know? It, although I think a lot of your day is going to be away from the general population. I don't think you're gonna be walking through right next to them or something. You might be pontificating from the top of the pyramid or this kind of thing. Wow, and pontificating, what would that look like for a Maya king uh, in the pre-Twitter days? <laughs> so uh, then as now, it's all about the show. You know, so, so there are pyramids that actually have kind of secret staircases up the back where the general population isn't going to see that. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, you can see these archaeologically. They're, they're great. You know, the king can be seen to just pop up off the, at the top of the pyramid. Boom, here I am. 
there's there's so much symbolism right there right i am connected to my ancestors of the sky i am up here above the rest of you you know and i and i popped out hey a little smoke and mirrors and i'm popping out the top of the pyramid and you better watch me because i'm about to tell you some really exciting stuff wow you mentioned bloodletting could you talk yes. a little bit about what that was about i would say one of the most famous rituals that a Maya king has to do is the bloodletting ceremony. Now, what I'm about to tell you does not happen every day. This is, this is a very special ceremony and underneath it all, and this will, this will make sense once we go through it, underneath it all, it's all about rain and corn. You will hear me say that so many times. Oh, it's all about rain. Hey, it's all about the corn because this is an agrarian farming society and my power comes from the people of my city and their ability to produce corn. So what I'm gonna do as king to assure a good harvest is I'm gonna pop up at the top of the pyramid and I'm gonna say, my flock, this season will be a fantastic growing season. You have chosen the right city to live in. You have chosen the right place to farm. We will have rain and corn as never before. And I will make sure because I will give a bloodletting ritual to my ancestors. At that point, I will pick up a stingray spine, drop my pants, put a ball right underneath me full of paper, and I will stab myself in my own penis. The blood from my penis will flow onto the paper in the bowl, and then that paper will be lit on fire, and the smoke will go up to the ancestors to show them I mean business. That's pretty intense. It must be intense because this is, as, as we'll see with the Maya and with so many other cultures, this, this is a, a, a ritual sacrifice. So we've, the, there's a sacrificial aspect to it. You, it's got to count. You can't have like a weak sacrifice. It, it's it's got to be the real deal. And the people go, okay. Because actually, in the Maya world, what's interesting is it's not the same as Egypt. I think an Egyptian pharaoh has it easy. Because an Egyptian pharaoh like rules the Nile. And in Egypt, for the environment, you have the Nile and then you just have the desert. And basically you gotta live on the Nile and that's the deal, right? right. In, the, in the Maya world, it's totally different. There's a ton of different rivers in the Maya world. There's a ton of different places to farm in the Maya world. So if your king sucks, just move to the next city, right? You're not trapped there by anything really. So pomp and circumstances. Right. Ex yeah, it's extra important. But there, there were options. And with all yes. these different polities existing close together, there's just a bunch of individual Maya kings. So you could vote with your feet if you weren't happy with the, the crop one year, it sounds like. Absolutely. Why not? So the, so the Maya king has got to like angle you back, you know, in, in some way by showing, hey, I mean, yeah, I see that other city has maybe a good corn crop this year, but check out my show. So what is the biggest mistake a Maya king could make in a world like this? Well, as with politics today, yesterday, anytime throughout history, there's a ton of mistakes a Maya king could make. I would say one of the biggies would be um, getting into warfare with another city where you're going to lose. It's, and it's going to cost you so much. Uh, you, you have to be so judicious with using your resources. So if you have a foolish king, like we were talking about earlier, we have a son because the kingship is passed from father to son. You have a stupid king. 
you're going to make horrible mistakes and you could lose your city to someone else. And so were these city states different in terms of their strengths? You know, were some better as agricultural venues and others better warmongers or how did they sort of stack up to one another? I would call it variations on the theme, just like with cities today. You know, if you compare San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles, they all have kind of their strengths and weaknesses. You know, where in the Maya time, maybe one man, maybe they just have the best soil for growing corn. They just do, mm -hmm. you know, you can't mm -hmm. win. But the other one maybe has really good outcrops for stone, for stone tools. That could be, that could be a thing. Um, maybe another one has a really good location right on the side of a major river for trade. So they all have their strengths and, and weaknesses, and they're all constantly kind of vying for, for one-upmanship. You know, if you, if you have a city that has like really good corn growing, but you're in an, in an area that's not good for trade, maybe you want to try and take over the other city that has like the good spot on the river. Yeah. You know, I can't help but think as I'm listening to you, Andrew, um, about this as you know, analogous and sort of reverse <laughs> to the United States. I mean, it, it sounds like what you've got here is a politically distinct set of individual city-states, but they, it sounds as if there's at, at least some sort of overarching unifying culture. I mean, I'd argue it's a little bit the opposite in the United States today. <laughs> there's certainly no unifying culture, but politically it's, it's united. Yeah, you know, overall, it's, it's just so similar to today when you look at these things and, and just think about them for a while and this sort of thing, the choices that rulers make and the, the, the awful downfall that can come from these foolish, foolish choices. You, you just, you see this in the past again and again and one more time. I think one of the most exciting things about studying the Maya or any other culture you know, like this, whether it be Egypt or you know, any of these, these kind of uh, cultures with cities and this kind of thing, is just the similarities and how every so often it's just shocking. You know, things like one of the, one of the big things that might have done the Maya in is drought and ruining their environment. They grew too much corn. Huh, just drought and Never ruining. I know, drought and <laughs> ruining the environment. Oh, and poor leadership. Drought. I, I I've heard disease too. <laughs> hey, see, you see how it all kind of comes together. You know, if you're like ruining yeah. your environment and then you're kind of Deja like, vu. <laughs> no, you're not as healthy as you used to be. And then it's easier to get the disease. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know why I've heard that. I just, I'm just, I'm just talking. Oh, and I'd really love to move to a discussion um, perhaps a little bit later about this question of whether the Maya civilization ever actually fell. You know, that's, oh, yeah, yeah. that seems like it's a bit of a debated topic. You've it, started our a, discussion saying there's a bunch of them living today. <laughs> yes, it's, it's complicated. It, it just basically depends on how you define fall of the Maya. It depends on where you look in the Maya world because some places were really kind of uh, were obliterated while others seem to kind of cruise through the whole thing. Were they always kings or is there any evidence for Maya queens? Oh, that's a great question. There, there are both Maya kings and queens. Queens are more rare, but hey, if you're the king and you have a stupid son 
and maybe that son <laughs> dies. Oops. You know, hey, maybe the daughter comes next. So you do have some evidence for some really powerful, really smart Maya queens. They're rare, they're rare, but they're there, you know, and they and they count just like a king. And actually, for those who know like the Egyptology world, there is kind of a co-regency thing in the Maya world. Okay, too it's like yeah. the Hatshepsut type situation. Yep. And okay. Yeah. But it, I'm struck. So so you I think I heard you say something about a, a son who's maybe less than stellar, perhaps <laughs> oops, having a yeah. fatal accident. <laughs> Was there this sort of intrigue we know about, for example, in you know, Tudor England courts where Oops, those heirs went missing under some stairs. Who's next? Absolutely. It's very Game of Thrones when you look at the Maya world. It's all of that. And it's one of the first things my students bring up and they're right. Hey, this sounds like Game of Thrones. Hey, this sounds like, you know, England or our, our idea of the monarchy through time. Of course it is because it's this family-based thing. It's this lineage-based thing. What's so great for us is since the Maya had hieroglyphics, they wrote all this stuff down. Oh, yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about the Maya glyphs, actually. Is it an alphabet? How does this communication form work? Okay, the Maya hieroglyphics are phonetic at its base. And what that means is every sign is a sound. So if I have two signs together, and one's the image of a fish, and one, that, one is the image of a stick, that doesn't mean fish stick. The... <laughs> I like the, your the term. I don't, hey, you gotta have a little fun. Uh, it does not mean fish stick, although I'm sure many of us wish it did. It means like the fish sign could have the the sound pl, and the stick sign should ha could have the sound ease. So that doesn't say fish stick. It could say please. The my hieroglyphics, I would also say, are if anything, I would say a bit more dense than the Egyptian ones, if you're sort of comparing. It's a difficult comparison. Mm -hmm. It's really an apples and oranges kind of thing. But, okay. the, but the Maya hieroglyphics, they're, they're in block form and you do read them left to right, just like we would read our own script and, and top to bottom. So they read the same in the same way. They're very dense, meaning each glyph can kind of say a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of variety in how to say the same thing. They all have their own little flair. So that can be complicated. It takes a while to realize you're actually rereading the same thing. Uh, sometimes, and sometimes they'll even use, I just told you it's not symbol based except when it is. So every <laughs> once, I know, every once in a long while, when you see the uh, glyph for a jaguar, that actually can mean jaguar, but it's rare. It's really phonetic at its base, the Maya hieroglyphics. And what did they write about? It's a lot of propaganda. When you read the stone Stella, it's all about the Maya king and all about how great he is and how many battles he's won and who his lineage is. That's exactly what I wanted to know. What right. the Maya hieroglyphs tell us about my politics? So, so the, when you see the Maya hieroglyphics on big stone Stella, these are, these are these things in the Maya world that look like huge tombstones, that those are kind of the most uh, politicking propaganda-ish, because it's all about the Maya king, and it's all about like the, the war, the war for he won, or, or the day of his coronation, or this kind of thing. There are all these big things, and it's all just super over-the-top positive about how great he is. Some of my more favorite hieroglyphics are those of the everyday in the home, because sometimes 
you'll see little things like on a on a jar and it'll say like this is justin's jar you know because <laughs> it's so human you know yeah. there'll be a, a symbol for like a ball used for a ball game and it'll say this is a number 14 ball which is which is great because we have that you know i i just i love those I love those, I love the hieroglyphics of the everyday, if that makes sense, just because they're so much more human. I get a little tired of hearing how great the king is all the time. So how was the king viewed by the Maya public? That one is a hard one to say because the Maya public didn't get to write down what they really thought. So you get a, a bunch of really nice made out of stone Stella that have lasted for a thousand years about how great the king is. But um, I think... I think just like today, the populace knew what was going on. They knew a good king and a bad king, you know, and like we said earlier, they could ultimately vote with their feet. They could leave. So, you know, if you're, if you're seeing a decline in population, we, we, can, we can guess at these kind of things archeologically. And sometimes there's interesting little side bits that even in propaganda, they kind of have to touch on. And you're like, ooh, yeah, something real bad happened. There's one where, where there's these hieroglyphics about this great king, but then one, one day the king entered the water. And what that means is not that the king went swimming. It means that the king oh. died. Because <gasps> oh. when you hear the term enter the water or enter the road, that means the king died because he went, he, the water and, and as we'll see in a minute, like the Milky Way, those are both kind of pathways to the other world. And so he went on this journey to the other world. So you'll see things like the king entered the water and then the next day a new king came, you know? And it's like, yeah, because the other city destroyed you and the new king came in and he killed the old guy, but they don't say it like that. The king is dead, long live the king. <laughs> yes, exactly. Wow. So it sounds like there were some real risks of being the Maya king, even though you were top of the pyramid, so to speak. It sounded sure. like it was a pretty risky job. Sure. It's super scary. You know, it's, it's very tense. Like there's always, just like politics of today, it's all that balanced stuff. You know, you, you're, you have this pressure from the people to, to do the right thing or make their lives better. You have exterior pressures from other cities trying to take you down. You're, you're trying to yeah. politic at the same time and tr trying to balance it out. You're trying to like keep friends friends until they need to be an enemy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough life in some ways. Was there a bureaucracy or was the king actually really hands-on in setting policy or just sort of you know, <laughs> enacting it for the people to see? The balance of what the king actually did in the bureaucracy is sometimes hard to say archaeologically, but the short answer is there's a ton of bureaucracy and mm. the king is going to be, I think, largely hands off on a lot of the day-to-day -day runnings of the city. Okay. So this is, in a lot of ways, a figurehead. He's got to do his show. He's got to do his pomp and circumstance, but, but he doesn't, <laughs> you know, he doesn't get his hands dirty. King don't get his hands dirty. You know, so you have a bunch, you have all different kinds of tiers of different officials and that kind of stuff as you go down in the Maya world. So there's a, there's a big bureaucracy there, I would say. Yeah. And was there any sort of um, protective 
system of trusted advisors or even fellow kings? I mean, did they sort of do side deals sometimes, as far as one can tell archaeologically with other city-states? I think the short answer is yes. And so they're, again, they're always politicking. They're always making, I'm sure they're always making side deals. They're always looking out for their own good. You know, so, so I think you're much better off just to assume that kind of stuff happens because it ends up making a lot more sense when you look at the archeological record. Now, nobody writes that stuff down. This is right. when I'm gonna stab my dad in the back. That, <laughs> Yeah. I'm just going to write it down so I don't forget to do right, it. Right, right. So we, we haven't found that sticky note in the archaeological record yet, but we're still looking. Well, maybe one of those not so bright uh, princes made it to the throne and did it. <laughs> I one can hope. I swear I would not be surprised, you know. So, Andrew, in this political bureaucracy, how was it organized? Were there any, you know, kind of Game of Thrones-esque small councils that the king would convene on a regular basis? I think we can say that there were, because you do tend to see this kind of thing in some of the carved stone monuments. Like you might have an image of, of this sort of thing. And in the architecture too, sometimes there's, there's rooms in the interior of some of these acropoli that you could just, guess at might have been a meeting area for some of these major people you know on on some sort of council or this kind of thing so while the king definitely didn't get his hands dirty day to day i'm sure he would have a meeting with these various advisors from different areas of the city like you're gonna want to talk with your general and touch base with him those those kind of people i think I think they would have some sort of meeting. I, I think you would almost have to in some way. We're, we're talking about cities loosely. What kind of population would your typical Maya city in the classic have uh, supported? Population is one of the most <laughs> difficult things to guess at in archaeology. I, and, and that I actually, I know, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. Pretend no. I'm that student trying to get from a B minus yeah. to an A plus. I'm happy to talk about population. So population is intrinsically difficult to get at. And you will even see sometimes archaeologists kind of guessing a little high, I think, because they want more focus on their site. You know, oh, 75,000 yeah. people. You're like, really? But, but. What I will say is those are educated guesses. Archaeologists mm -hmm. never just take flights of fancy. So a, oh, a big Maya city, a big one. I think you could throw out a number like 50,000. And that's, that's not big. insane. Yeah, they're big. And the, the structure of the city kind of bleeds out from the center. So it's a very... It's much more of a Los Angeles structure to the city than a San Francisco structure to the city, if that makes sense. You have the central area with the pyramids and the Acropoli and the, the, the various plazas and all this kind of stuff, the, the big architecture. And then as you spread out into the jungle, you have uh, farmer's fields with the farmer's houses, kind of the suburbs. And then it spreads way, way out. And then you have the edge of the jungle. We have to remember, these are all cities in the jungle. And the jungle too was not just all cut down. The Maya knew the importance of their natural environment, their natural world of the jungle. So while they did have to cut down some of the jungle, of course, to grow their corn, 
they would also manage the jungle. So the jungle oh. is this managed world where yes, you're growing corn, but you're also going out into the, into the jungle to hunt, to get other kinds of food besides corn. You know, you want avocados or this kind of thing. So it's very much corn with a managed jungle on the outskirts of this, of this huge city, <laughs> sort of using the entire jungle and focusing it into this area of central structures. What's great about the structure of a Maya city is it shows the hierarchical structure in the architecture. So mm -hmm. the king, who's the leader, who's the powerful center, is in the center with the huge physically massive pyramids. And then mm -hmm. as you spread out, oh, right, right on the edge of the city core, there might be like larger houses for maybe the, mm -hmm. the higher end bureaucrats or this kind of thing. And then as you spread out, you get poorer as you go to just sort of the basic farmers on, on the outskirts. So the political structure of the Maya is written in their architecture. <laughs> I love it. That's actually really helpful for an archeologist. That was very, very thoughtful of them. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you, ancient Maya. You ha still haven't written the note of when you stabbed the king in the back, but at least you put your houses in the right spot. Is there an expedient way to discuss the Maya religious beliefs, cosmology, what have you, in relation to its political structure and its kingship? Maya religion, is fantastic because it's so complex and it's so deep and i love the mythology and the cosmology we're talking you know stories about how to do the right thing plus how the universe is oriented there's just so much there and that's one of the things that draws people to the maya is the religion and the cosmology and all that great stuff a lot of it is centered on the popol vuh the popol vuh is the maya creation mythology and mm -hmm. the popol vuh the central characters are two twin brothers, the hero twins. And the hero twins basically show you the right thing to do. They are the heroes of the story. So when you hear the Popol Vuh, the hero twins are indicating to you, hey, you should live like this. Hey, you should do this. Hey, here, here's what people in power do. Here's, here's why they have power, because they're part of this. You know, so the, the, the Popol Vuh is this very, uh, central story and underneath it all as always you'll never guess it's about corn the central <laughs> god is the corn god the corn god is the father of the hero twins and the whole arc of the story is about the death and rebirth of the corn god as the death and rebirth of corn 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 right that's <laughs> That's what you get underneath all of this. And I tell my students, when in doubt on the final, just guess corn. <laughs> no wonder you get such good reviews. on <laughs> that's, that's all you got to do. You just got to write corn. And then you, you instant A. Yeah, that's where, I, that's where I get my rate, my professors. Yeah, well, you need to eat. It's hard to do much yeah. else if you're a hungry population. Right. And Makes so, sense. Um, and so with this religion and this, and this focus on, because this is an agrarian society, it's, you do need the corn and the rain. So the corn god and the rain god are two very, very central figures. And uh, with these guys, they're also players in our journey to the afterlife too. Now where the king 
gets to go straight to the floral paradise. That's the world of the sky. When the king dies, he gets to go in a canoe and the canoe is paddled by paddler guys. Oh, and so is that what the reference to the king is in the water? Yes. Uh, and he's paddled, he's paddled up the Milky Way as a road to the floral paradise. So enter the water, enter the road. You're entering that system that's going to take you up to the floral paradise. Sounds lovely. It's, it's pretty good. But you very rarely hear about the floral paradise. It's, it, what you do hear, what the ancient Maya write about it, they say things like it smells nice. You know, it's, a, it's an area of plenty. It, it, it's just this fantastical place, but you don't hear about it that much because for the rest of us, we don't get to go straight to the floral par paradise. For the rest of us, we have to go to Shibalba, the underworld. Now, you can make it out of the underworld. Don't think of the underworld as like a hell, as like a fire and brimstone kind of thing, because it's not. Shibalba is much more a purgatory, a sort of a... It's a dark place, but it's a place you figure out all the stuff you did wrong in life. And if you figure that all out, if you go through the trials of Shibalba, you will ultimately go up to the floral paradise. So the king doesn't have to do the extra step that the rest of us do. Oh, the rich. It's always yeah. easier for them. I know. Did the Mayan people view their king as godlike in any way? So he is... He is, he is godlike. On, on some of the sarcophagus lids of the rulers, you will see carved things like the world tree. The world tree just looks like a cross. Now this has nothing to do with like Catholicism or anything like that. It, it's a cross shape that the Maya used to symbolize the world tree. The world tree is the center, the center of the universe. And you will see the world tree on these sarcophagus lids growing out of the king. So what that means is when the king walked by you, the center of the universe just walked by you. That's power. I, I've got to ask you, Andrew, do you see any parallels between classic Maya politics and those around us today? I see about a million and one parallels between classic Maya politics and politics of today. And all you have to do is look for four minutes and you see all these kind of things. Things like the focus on pomp and circumstance, show over content, right? That's, un I hate to say it, it's unfortunate, but that's how you control people. You give them this great yeah. show. And as long as things aren't too bad, as long as the rain keeps flowing, you know, then everything's okay. And then you take credit for a bunch of stuff that you didn't do. You know, th this, you see these parallels again and again and again and one more time. I mean, our current president is a reality television star. Now, I say that as just a fact. It is. But, it is a fact. It's like bread and circuses all over again. We had an ancient room. Absolutely. You know, and and a Maya king is going to be very conscious of that kind of thing. Man, the first thing a Maya king would want to do is get on a reality TV show. You know, the first thing he'd want to do <laughs> be on television. You know, because oh my God, there's this device that you can blast this out to yeah. all all of the people in the city. En enough of this bloodletting crack. You know, let me get on Facebook. You know, like it's it's so it's it's all the same. You know, the 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 political shenanigans and machinations and backstory. Back, you know, uh, 
behind the scenes deals and the people too, you know, we're part of this. It, it, the, if the ancient Maya went along blindly with their ruler, we go along blindly with our ruler too. You know, that people are people are people. For today's episode, we're going to try something a little different. Our producer Aiden happened to find a time machine at a yard sale last week. It's an older model, but it seems to be in working order. He's going to test it out with our guest and hopefully we'll be treated to an eyewitness, well, ear witness account of an everyday Maya person watching the king in action. I'm pretty excited for this, I'm not gonna lie. So with that, let's dive in. Here we are. Welcome to the uh, the Watt Time Machine. That's Watt spelled W-O-T. It's the Working Overtime Time Machine, uh, and we're just going to step right in. We're going to take uh, we're going to take a little trip today. And uh, if you would like, if you wouldn't mind, just telling us, um, you know, where where would you want to go today? You know, what's a site from the time period of the ancient Maya, uh, the classical period, that you would want to visit today, and, and maybe just have a, a bite to eat for lunch and stroll through stroll through town. I think for today, we're going to have to visit the site of Tikal. So Tikal is in modern day Guatemala. Um, welcome to the Time Machine Bar. What, what, what do you want to drink? We've got some nice coffee, got some tea. You know, what are you feeling today? You know, some of that stuff you don't have because this is the new world. So uh, check that out for uh, <laughs> overblown academics. So <laughs> what, I think, what I think I'm going to drink is chocolate. I'm going to have cacao. Now, oh, okay. Yeah. Because cacao, now, this isn't going to be like chocolate milk. It's going to be probably a mix of, of cacao and cinnamon. It's not really going to be milk-based. It's going to be kind of a strong drink. So almost like a dark chocolate black coffee vibe to it. Uh, very, very, but very, very different from anything we'd be used to. But still, it's a very kind of iconic um, Central American you know, drink this this idea of cacao and cacao beans even were were traded and, and highly valued, just like coffee beans of today, the same the same sort of thing. So I'm definitely gonna like have some cacao at this bar while I'm hanging out. Let's say we're heading to let's say we're heading to a ball game. You know, what what sort of snack or food? Um it's around lunchtime. Would you wanna sort of grab and, and well and... this is going to be shocking to you, but it's gonna be made out of corn. Oh, so, yeah. wow. And, uh, you know, the, the snack, uh, I foresee, like, sort of a, the snacks at a Maya ball game, I think it's going to be tamales. In Central America, they have things like sweet corn tamales, and these are very sugary. They're, they're very treat-like. Like, I could see serving sweet corn tamales at a, at a ball game event today. It's, it's like a fest. <laughs> it is. It's like a festive food, if that makes sense. You yeah. Know, you're like sipping a party on, food. Yeah, you're sipping on a little <laughs> cacao. You're like eating a little sweet corn tamale. I could, and it's portable. You know, it, it, I could totally. See oh, it. true. Yeah. yeah, you could. You could just. You have it in one hand, and you're you're eating that, and you're like hanging out watching the ball game. You know, we're getting to the ball game, and maybe you know it looks like the king might be here. Uh, you know, from across the way, or you know, what sort of royal symbols associated with the king might might we see? You know, what's the common imagery? 
well, this is a big game, so there's going to be a lot of pomp and circumstance. So the king's going to come out in all his regalia. He's going to have <laughs> – he will, man. This is a big game. So he's he's dressed in his, like, huge – he's going to have a really big headdress full of um, – <laughs> Full of these secrets. It, it, is, it is. And the inside. On the outside, it's going to be um, made of like mop mop feathers. These are these very long kind of flowing feathers. Um, he probably won't be wearing a ton of clothing because again, this is the jungle. This is Central America. This is a hot place. But he's definitely mm. going to be wearing a lot of jade jewelry. Jade is kind of the the Maya gold, if there's such thing. There's there's no gold in the Maya world. So jade is their precious material. Oh. It's this, you know, bright green stone. He's gonna have jade like in his his earrings. He's gonna have these huge ear spools of jade. He's gonna have a really heavy jade necklace. Um, he's gonna have like a like a multicolored skirt uh, of of really finely woven multicolored skirt. If even today, if you go to Guatemala, Guatemalan fabrics are highly prized. These are these very vibrant, multicolored things. I think you could see some of that in the past. So he's going to be dressed in that regalia. And more, even more importantly, he's a very beautiful person. And the reason why he's a very beautiful person is his eyes are crossed. And this isn't because he's focusing on crossing his eyes. It's because a bead was placed between his eyes when he was a baby. So as he grew up, his eyes grew crossed. So he has crossed eyes. That's a symbol of beauty. He has jade inlays in his teeth. So there's these circular jade inlays throughout his teeth because that is a symbol of beauty. And the teeth themselves are filed down in sort of a zigzag pattern. So when he smiles, you have this zigzag jade smile with these crossed eyes and actually his head itself is changed. His, his head has been, the forehead has been pushed back from birth. They would put the baby's head in like, you know, like a wooden device in order to make their head grow backwards. So he has this backward sloping head with crossed eyes and these jade teeth. It's like, it shows you, I am royalty. I am beautiful and I am not you. Wow, that so you, is something. That is an image and a half right there. Right. So you see this person, and some even say <laughs> that, that the the head sloping, that cranial deformation, we call it in archaeology, that mm. that his cranial deformation is actually to make his head look a little more like an ear of corn. <laughs> oh my god! Because it does. Like the hair will tassel up in the back. Uh, <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm jumping out a little on the narrow branch saying that, but that's not, that's not a crazy guess. That is an educated guess. Oh, so wow. this, this image of this person who is just beyond you. And so, of course, it's all pomp and circumstance. So this is like human as God-like creature. He, he is more than you. Wow, that is insane. I mean, I can't, that sounds insanely intimidating, but also like sure. awe-inspiring at the same time. Like you, you can't take your eyes off. Right. I imagine. Wow. That means it's a success. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what you want. You're the ruler. Wow. Oh my so, God. Wow. So that's you, awesome. so as we walk up to the ball game, you see, you know, the king and his court too, like the Maya royalty, they'll look like that too. You know, the, the, mm -hmm. the high, high end people. And so they're going to sit down, you know, he'll, the king will probably pontificate a little to show that he is a part of this ball game and, you, you know, and all successes go to him. And, <laughs> 
and then the ball game will start and we'll sit down and we'll watch it. There's a lot of places to sit because Maya architecture, they're very smart on this where they'll, they'll build the ball court, but it'll be like right next to the pyramids and stuff. So you can sit on the pyramids huh. while watching the ball game. So you can sit close, you can sit far, so you can actually hold a lot of people and watch the ball game because the architecture focuses down, down to the ball court. I love how utilitarian that is. That's mm -hmm. awesome. That is so smart. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it sounds like it sounds like the Mayan King is basically the worst uh, group project partner in the world. It's just like, oh, you've done all the work. And now it's like, look how look how great he is. I'm a part of this, too. Of course um, he is, because, you know, he's godlike and you're not. So you yep. do what you do what I say. I'm the king. Do as I say. <laughs> wow. But, yeah. That's awesome. So. So. OK. So now, you know, the game's sort of winding down. You know, everyone's kind of you know, shuffling out on their way, I guess. You know, what's what might the what's the king doing now? Is he immediately leaving? Does he engage with the public in any sort of even semi-casual way? And what, I guess, what are the, what what does the social scene with the masses look like? Are people just going home or is there some sort of like celebrations on the side that take place? Ooh, I think I think the answer is yes to all. And what, <laughs> and what I mean by that is the, after the game's over, let's say, hey, let's say the King's team won, you know, I, I'm sure the King is now going to take all credit. And thus, like I said, my team has vanquished the outside forces, pomp and circumstance. You want to mm. show how great you are. You want to take credit whenever you can. Mm. And then I'm guessing that the King would, would then sort of go back into his, uh, his own sort of cutoff chamber area because the king the the whole royal court is going to be divorced from the common man you know they're not going to be walking through the masses shaking mm. hands or something that, that's not their you know that's not their that's not their jam yeah they, they not their mo <laughs> no so so afterwards i'm sure um Maya people are people too, you know, I'm sure they would have parties before and after i'm sure they would tailgate you know i think <laughs> why not I think one of the mistakes we make as as modern people looking back to the past is we so often take the the past too seriously. We we think that the people of the past were just these monolithic people who just you know focused on is the sun gonna come up tomorrow or not? Me don't know. Me scared of <laughs> darkness. Will sun come? No, they weren't. They were dynamic, interesting, intelligent individuals just like you and me. They had good days and bad days. They loved their children. They joked with their coworkers. You know, <laughs> we have to remember that the people are people. And even if something like a ball game was supposed to have a really symbolic imagery with it, which I'm sure it did, I'm sure people were laughing at the side and having their own fun and eating too many tamales and, you know, <laughs> just just like you and I. So we want to we want to remember that there's a real human aspect to this. Andrew, this has been an absolutely incredibly interesting conversation. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and bring us down you know, really to the to the very nitty gritty details of everyday life for a Mayan king, but helping us to think about you know how relevant all of it is even today. Absolutely, Karen. Thank you so much. It was great fun. As a Maya king, many of your beliefs and duties would flummox a leader in today's world. But there are also striking echoes today of the endless interplay of human politics, pomp, and circumstance. The rules and risks of public duty may differ, but the pressure to perform in the public eye transcends time and culture. 
the pressure to be the most beautiful, the most talked about, just the most. Even for those groomed for a lifetime to be larger than life, the toll would have been and remains enormous. While so much has changed since Maya kings ruled Mesoamerica, so much really hasn't. Our leaders can still seem otherworldly until they inevitably stumble, proving they are human like us after all. Will human politics always be more show than substance? Well, to paraphrase Dr. Kinkella, we haven't found that sticky note in the archeological record yet either. Thanks for listening, until next time. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at WorkingOTSeries. Thanks for listening and remember to like and subscribe.